studios of WVMN 90.7 The Pulse and the geographic footnote that is Grantham, Pennsylvania. This is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Welcome, everyone, to episode two of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We're glad you've joined us. And thanks to all of you who have downloaded episode one and episode zero of the podcast. We really appreciate your support. And for those of you who are listening to the podcast for the first time, we hope you'll head over to iTunes and subscribe and download previous episodes. We also encourage your feedback. You can contact us through the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog. That's at thewayofimprovement.com. Or even better, leave a comment for us at iTunes. As always, I am with my partner in crime and the producer of the podcast, Drew Hermeling. Drew, have you gotten yourself dug out yet from Winter Storm Jonas? Yeah, it took us a long time. As people in the area know, Harrisburg received a record-setting amount of snow, more snow in one storm than the city of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania has ever received. Fortunately, we live on a very quiet, uh, not well-traveled street, but that does mean that when it comes time to pretty low on the priority list so at one point i was out with a bunch of my neighbors literally shoveling our own street because (laughs) it took it took so long for the plows to come through yeah my kids have been out of school for three days we got something like 38 inches in mechanicsburg which is just on the other side of the river and it's where our studios here at messiah college are located uh it was i tell you i think it was monday was a definitely a a multiple Advil day uh, in terms of my back, but a lot of shoveling. But I, I think we're I think we're getting there. Kids went back to school today, and uh, certainly a monument monumental event uh, in the history of Central Pennsylvania. So, what else have you been up to? Uh, how's the syllabus preparation going? Well, I mean, the the added time off, uh, having my wife at home to help take care of the baby, has helped me dedicate a little bit more time to preparing my syllabus. What's the class again? Uh, I'm teaching Native American cultures here at Messiah. It's been a lot of fun. It's been challenging learning a new online class management system, getting all (laughs) my assignments uploaded, and actually, at this point, deciding which readings I'm not going to assign. That's right. At this point, I think I've overloaded my students a little bit. What are some of the, what are you, what are you assigning? What are some of the readings? Well, we're we're going to be reading the, the classic Native American ethnography Black Elk Speaks, which has been a little bit controversial. So we're going to look at the ways in which people have either really appreciated or critiqued that work. But we're also going to be reading uh, Playing Indian by Philip Mm. Deloria, who was recently a guest speaker here at Messiah College. Yeah, when Deloria was here, he, he gave our American Democracy Lecture a couple of years ago. It was phenomenal. And he also got to tell us some great stories about his dad, uh, the Indian activist and historian Vine Deloria. Uh, it was just a wonderful visit uh, that he had, and a lot of us are still talking about it. Yeah, it was a wonderful, wonderful talk. Uh, and in fact, we're actually going to be reading a little bit from his father as well, his kind of seminal work, Custer Died for Your Sins, which is one of the more important works of the Red Power Movement. Vine Deloria, Custer died for your sins. God is red. Yeah. Uh, you know, this this guy was a Native American prophet in many ways. But anyways, that's probably another episode, <laughs> right? We can uh, we can maybe focus on the Delorias in a future episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. So how about you, John? 
I understand you have done some traveling lately. Yeah, we just actually got back from Oxford. That's Oxford in England. Uh, last week, I was giving a lecture at Pembroke College on behalf of Oxford's Rothermere American Institute. It was actually my first visit to Oxford, so we also did a lot of sightseeing and touristy type stuff. Uh, I think my wife and I both concluded that we definitely want to return to the city of dreaming spires very soon. But other than that, I've been playing dad. I've been shuttling my daughters to various practices and events. Uh, all these things I don't usually get a chance to do uh, when I'm teaching full time. As some of you know, I'm on sabbatical this year, which has been nice. So uh, enough of the banter, Drew. What do we have? What do we have today? Well, even though this is only our second episode of the podcast, we are already diving into controversial waters. <laughs> That's right. Our theme for this episode is the culture wars. Yeah, we're probably crazy for doing a culture wars episode so early in the history of the podcast. But when I learned about the new work of our guest, I thought it would be good to strike while the iron is hot. Uh, more on that later. Indeed, the culture wars can be divisive. In fact, I think it is fair to tell our listeners that you and I, John, we disagree on a lot of the cultural issues and, and, and social issues that we will be talking about today. But we do hope our audience will remember that this is a history podcast. There is a lot that divides the United States as a nation. And if James Grossman of the American Historical Association, who was our guest on the previous episode, was right, everything does have a history. Indeed, yes. Even the culture wars have a history. And I think the history of the culture wars is particularly timely today, uh, not only in light of the election, but of other current events as well. Yeah, I don't know if you saw, but uh, in Texas, the Center for Medical Progress, which, which produced those videos accusing Planned Parenthood, well, they are now being indicted themselves. Yeah, well, hopefully all of these questions related to abortion, Planned Parenthood, feminism, women's rights, and so forth, hopefully our guest, Daniel Williams, will be able to help us sort out some of this complicated history. Well, that, and that's an interesting point that you make, and I think it relates to something that you talked about on the previous episode. You referred to us as historians as truth-tellers. Now, I think that's a really interesting point, because in my experience as a graduate student, my advisors will often remind us that we don't necessarily seek truth when we investigate the past, but instead we make arguments informed by the past. And I think that is really apropos considering the kinds of conversations we're planning on having today in which the, the, the past informs very, very impassioned political conversations. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to get political when we talk about the uh, culture wars. But as we're going to see, I think... If we are pursuing truth uh, and we are trying to develop narratives about the history of a controversial movement like the culture wars, uh, I think we sometimes need to put our political biases aside and just try to understand uh, the meaning of uh, these movements, whatever they might be. Well, yeah. And on that note, I'm thrilled that we have Daniel Williams on the show today. Daniel teaches history at the University of West Georgia. He writes about religion and politics and is the author of a brand new book, hot off the presses with Oxford University Press, titled Defenders of the Unborn, the Pro-Life Movement Before Roe v. Wade. John, I know you're excited about this book. Yeah, I love books that use history to turn commonly held assumptions upside down. Now, I don't want to steal any of Daniel's thunder in the interview, but I think it's fair to say that this book does just that in its treatment of the pro-life movement in America. Yes, I think our listeners really are going to enjoy this interview. But before we get to that, we begin with another story by you, John, that places Daniel's book in a larger historical context.
In some respects, the idea of culture wars goes back to the very founding of the American Republic. I was just writing something the other day about the founding of an organization called the American Bible Society. It was founded in 1816 by Christian Federalists who were waging, to borrow historian Andrew Hartman's phrase, a war for the soul of America. The founders of the American Bible Society wanted to change the progressive trajectory of the nation by directing it away from what they saw as the skepticism and liberty-driven licentiousness of Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, and their followers, and wanted to turn the course of the country toward a more Christian republic, informed by the teachings of an inspired Bible, a God-inspired Bible. And then there was the early 20th century and the so-called fundamentalist modernist controversy. This was a religious battle over Christian civilization in the United States, but it also spilled over into all areas of culture, culminating in the four-time Democratic presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan defending creationism in Dayton, Tennessee, against biological and social Darwinism. Culture wars emerge at various times in our history, usually at times of intense social change. The most recent manifestation of the culture wars, the one that has been raging since the 1960s and 1970s, is a perfect example of this historical phenomenon. Back in 1892, the Supreme Court in the famous Church of the Holy Trinity versus United States case announced that this, the United States, is indeed a quote-unquote Christian nation. No one blinked an eye at such, an ex at such a statement. No one would have argued that the cultural values embraced by Americans were defined by values and social beliefs that might be described as Christian. But in many ways, the Holy Trinity case was probably one of the last times that such a definitive statement about the Christian nature of American culture could be made without some kind of resistance. About a half century later, the same court in the Everson v. Board of Education case would draw a distinct barrier between Christianity and the state. As Justice Hugo Black argued in the majority decision, there is a, quote, wall of separation between church and state, unquote, in the United States. And that wall is, quote, unquote, high and impregnable. This led to a perfect storm of secularism that many conservative Christians are still trying to contain. Consider the path of this storm. In 1963, the Supreme Court ruled in Engel v. Vital that school-sponsored non-denominational prayer violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. A year later, the same court ruled that school-sponsored Bible reading in public schools was also unconstitutional. For some, these decisions were constitutional triumphs the natural and logical application of the Bill of Rights to the role of religion in public schools. For others, it was a clear sign that Christian civilization was crumbling. These activist courts were, as Christian traditionalists understood it, removing God from public schools. By the end of the 1960s, a flood of non-Christian immigrants began arriving to American shores. The Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, also known as the Hart Seller Act, opened the door to immigrants from Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. American culture became more ethnically diverse, but it also became more religiously diverse. 
The result for some was a rethinking of the meaning of American pluralism. The sociologist Will Herberg's formulation of Protestant Catholic Jew, the title of his best-selling book, no longer seemed relevant. Others, of course, resisted the religious change and saw it as yet another threat to Christian culture in America. Race also had something to do with all of this. When the Supreme Court said that private educational institutions that discriminated in admissions against people of color could no longer be eligible for federal funds, Christian libertarians went crazy. The Green v. Connolly decision of 1971 meant that schools like Bob Jones University and a host of small private Christian high schools that did not allow African Americans would either have to submit to the federal government or suffer financially. For many affiliated with these schools, Green v. Connolly represented government intrusion on local educational practices. Big government was getting in the way of their liberties. When President Jimmy Carter came out in support of Green v. Connolly, many evangelicals, Jerry Falwell being perhaps the most famous, turned against the Baptist Sunday school teacher from Plains, Georgia, and supported the conservative Ronald Reagan in 1980. And of course, the 1973 decision Roe v. Wade also contributed to the culture wars. The legalization of abortion cannot be understood without the rise of feminism. The heart of the debate was whether women had a constitutional right to control their bodies. If they did, then they also had the right to end an unwanted pregnancy. But for others, the ending of the life of a child in the womb was an immoral act that violated the constitutional rights of the child, natural law, and the teachings of Christianity. Add debates over stem cell research and gay marriage to the mix, and one can see why these culture wars have been such a defining part of American life in the past 50 years. History of the Culture Wars provides a wonderful framework for our interview with today's guest. Daniel K. Williams teaches history at the University of West Georgia. His research focuses on the intersection between politics and religion in modern America. He is the author of God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right, which appeared with Oxford University Press in 2010, as well as several articles that examine the history of American evangelicalism and the rise of political conservatism in the post-war United States. His current book, as we have already noted, is Defenders of the Unborn, the Pro-Life Movement Before Roe v. Wade, which was published earlier this month by Oxford. We recently sat down with Daniel to talk about the history of the pro-life movement in America.
I first learned about Daniel Williams' work when he broke onto the scene in 2010 with a great book uh, on the origins of the Christian right called God's Own Party. And I loved what he did with this sort of GOP there. Uh, God's Own Party, the making of the Christian right. Uh, and to this day, I think it's still the best thing I have read. Uh, there's been a lot of books on the Christian right and the origins of the Christian right that have followed um, God's own party. But so far, this is the best thing that I think I have read on it. So when I saw that Daniel was now working on the pro-life movement and he had a new book out uh, on the history of the pro-life movement, I thought we need to get this guy on the show uh, and we need to talk a little bit about uh, the pro-life movement, the history of the pro-life movement, and particularly the pro-life movement before Roe versus Wade. Uh, and as Drew mentioned, um, his title of his book is Defending the Unborn, the Pro-Life Movement Before Roe v. Wade. So it's great to have you on the show, Daniel. Well, thanks, John. It's a delight to be here. Let's start off um, with, I, I guess, probably the big picture question, a uh, question that you ask in your introduction why do we even need a history of pro-life activism? The pro-life movement is an extremely large movement. It is easily one of the most uh, influential uh, movements in modern American uh, political history. Uh, there are tens of millions of Americans who identify themselves as pro-life and the largest pro-life organizations number in the millions in terms of their membership. The movement has had tremendous influence on the course of American politics uh, since the 1970s. It's, it's arguably contributed to uh, the realignment of America's uh, political parties. And yet, there's very little in the way of, of good scholarship, uh, particularly good historical scholarship, on the pro-life movement. So I think it's really past time for historians to take this movement seriously and discover who the actors uh, in that movement are and were. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, as I began this research, so I began the research with the, the desire to know something more about the history of the pro-life movement and understand it on its own terms, I discovered something even more fascinating, which is that the early pro-life movement did not neatly align with uh, America's political parties. And, and it was not part of the conservative movement at all. Uh, it eventually came to influence the conservative movement, but its initial history actually started out on the left. And so in addition to being an important movement, uh, the pro-life movement is, is also uh, an extremely interesting movement. Uh, even for those who may not think they care a great deal about the abortion issue per se, if you want to understand a fascinating story in, in modern American politics, I think uh, the pro-life movement is such a story. That is so fascinating. I'm always fascinated by historical projects that do not, especially in the area of politics or religion and politics, that do not fit into the sort of contemporary boxes, uh, whether it be political parties or left and right, uh, that we've kind of created for ourselves here in the late 20th and 21st century. Now, Daniel, you argue at times throughout the book, uh, you make this argument that the pro-life movement is motivated at different times in 20th century history uh, by sort of different ways of arguing. So as I read the book, uh, I noticed that sometimes the pro-life movement is driven by kind of Catholic natural law, 
uh, arguments. Other times people make pro-life arguments based on, say, marriage or sexual ethics. And then even uh, appealing to the nation or human rights or American rights, uh, people have made arguments. Could you could you develop that a little bit and maybe explain the differences between these various arguments and perhaps put them into some kind of 20th century historical context for us? Sure. Uh, the natural law argument is uh, the oldest of those three arguments in the pro-life movement. For decades, uh, in the early to mid-20th century, Catholics who argued against abortion did so on natural law grounds. Uh, natural law philosophy or natural law uh, theology uh, is derived in part uh, from some of the teachings of, of Thomas Aquinas, uh, this very influential medieval uh, Catholic scholar. And since then, natural law has continued to develop. Uh, but essentially, the natural law argument uh, goes something like this, that abortion is wrong because it violates principles that can be discerned from the natural order. And you can therefore make a reasoned argument from the natural order that human life begins at conception, uh, that the the uh, fetus or embryo should be uh, preserved, uh, has rights as a human being, uh, is a human person from uh, that moment of, of conception. And that argument continues to, to have some influence today uh, in certain intellectual circles. However, as I also argue in the book, Catholics never would have been able to create a nationally influential movement if they had stopped with that argument. Uh, because while natural law arguments are are quite fascinating. And while today I think an increasing number of evangelical Protestants are beginning to take natural law seriously, for most of the 20th century, natural law arguments had very little currency among Protestants. Uh, Protestants tended to dismiss those. Anyone outside of the Catholic intellectual tradition uh, really didn't speak in terms of natural law uh, throughout most of the 20th century. So the pro-life movement's success came because they were able to translate those natural law arguments into uh, some other arguments, and particularly into human rights-based arguments. So one of the arguments that I, I present in the book uh, is this, this, or one of the arguments that I just discuss in the book is this uh, human rights argument that says that the fetus uh, is a human person, therefore has uh, universal human rights as well as uh, constitutional civil rights, uh, universal human rights that would be recognized uh, internationally, that would be codified, say, in the uh, United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, and uh, constitutional civil rights uh, that would be uh, encapsulated, say, in the, the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. The pro-life movement claimed uh, that the unborn child was protected uh, by the U.S. Constitution. Of course, those on the other side of the debate disagreed, and eventually the, the Supreme Court came to side with uh, the pro-choice uh, interpretation of the Constitution rather than the pro-life one. But uh, a human rights argument essentially corresponds to the natural law argument, uh, but without using some of the, the technical philosophical arguments that seem to have appeal mainly to Catholic intellectuals. So as a result, once the pro-life movement began trumpeting its human rights-based argument or its constitutional argument, it was able to broaden its appeal. Now, you mentioned one other uh, argument, the sexual ethics. Right. And that, I think, has had particular appeal to evangelical Protestants uh, from the 1970s onward. Uh, today, of course, I think a lot of evangelicals would be very comfortable making a human rights argument 
on behalf of the, of the unborn. But initially, what brought many evangelicals into the pro-life camp was a realization that the abortion rights movement was very closely tied, in their view, to the sexual revolution. Uh, today, more than 80% of abortions are obtained by unmarried women. Uh, it was a lower percentage in the early 1970s, but still a majority. Uh, there seemed to be this connection that evangelicals could draw between greater acceptance of abortion and other trends that, that disturbed them. And so for many evangelicals in the 1970s, the abortion issue was was not so much a, a human rights issue, although it eventually became that for them, but it was instead a a sign of uh, of sexual rebellion, of rebellion against God. And so they coupled abortion with other issues uh, that they saw in society, other trends that they disagreed with, like the growing trend toward toward gay rights and legal protections uh, for for gays and lesbians. And they uh, they viewed abortion rights as very much uh, like those other trends that they disagreed with. That's a nice segue into the next question. You hear a lot about a lot of evangelicals today will argue, you know, well, we didn't get involved in abortion or pro, I'm sorry, pro-life issues because that was a Catholic thing. Uh, you know, that's what Catholics did. And then it wasn't really till, you know, after Roe v. Wade that evangelicals, you mentioned the influence of people like Francis Schaeffer and others, uh, the moral majority, Jerry Falwell and so forth. Uh, why do you think that, and first of all, is that true? It seems like it is from the answers you've given to the previous questions. But why why didn't Protestants get more involved in pro-life causes, say, prior to 1970? I think there were several related reasons for that. And yes, I think it is true that that there was very little evidence of of an evangelical presence in the pro-life movement prior to about 1970 or 1971. The reason for that is, first of all, evangelicals throughout the early 1960s and even continuing into the late 1960s and beyond had a strong suspicion of Catholics. This, of course, dated back all the way to the Reformation. And in addition to that, the pro-life movement up until the mid-1960s had been closely linked with Catholic opposition to contraception. And although evangelicals had opposed contraception in the early 20th century, so in the, in the 1920s, for example, self-identified fundamentalists uh, did speak out against contraception, by the early 1960s, magazines such as Christianity Today, national evangelical leaders such as Billy Graham uh, mm-hmm. and others were saying that there's nothing wrong uh, with the use of birth control. So as a result, uh, if this was a movement that tended to align itself with opposition to something that most evangelicals by the mid-1960s thought was was perfectly fine, was, was perfectly benign, it was not a movement that they were likely to join. And finally, I would say, Protestants in the 1960s lacked a clear theology about when human life began. Mm-hmm. So there was near unanimity among evangelical Protestants in America in the 1960s that uh, sex outside of, of marriage was wrong and that any s- sort of abortion policy that might aid sexual promiscuity would be, would be wrong. And there was also a general consensus, I think, that the, the fetus had value. Uh, that human personhood didn't begin simply at birth. 
At the same time, though, uh, while Protestants, for the most part, could unite in opposition to what they called abortion on demand, that is the legalization of, of elective abortion for any reason, there was not yet a clear theology that human life began at conception. There were some Bible verses uh, that some evangelicals appealed to in the late 1960s that did seem to indicate that, that maybe that was the point at which mm -hmm. uh, human personhood began. But there were some other Bible verses that, to, to be fair to, to the other side, uh, could seem to weigh, weigh in on, on the, the opposite conclusion. And so evangelicals being very biblically centered in the 1960s and, and not having uh, this long history of centuries, uh, long opposition to abortion as, as the Catholic Church had, uh, felt that they, there was no clear reason why they should oppose what in the late 1960s seemed to be very modest changes in abortion law. That is, in the late 1960s, the issue was not should states legalize uh, abortion altogether in the first or second trimesters, but rather should uh, states permit doctors to uh, perform abortions when the health of a woman was at risk or uh, in cases of rape or incest. Mm -hmm. And for many evangelical Protestants, they weren't willing to take a stand on that issue. Sure. Now, thinking here of the 1960s and the, the Catholic pro-life movement, what is Vatican II? How does Vatican II play into all of this? Did that sort of loosen the Catholic position? Uh, what was their view on, on, uh, on abortion? Um, you know, how does that fit into the mix here? I think the the effects of Vatican II were complex because on yeah. the one hand, Vatican II included a strong condemnation of abortion. Vatican II called abortion an unspeakable crime. Uh, but on the other hand, Vatican II also contained a strong endorsement of religious freedom. Uh, mm. And some Catholics interpreted that as a signal that they should no longer be involved in the, the sort of moral campaigns, anti-vice campaigns that the, the Catholic Church had been involved in. Uh, in the United States up to that point. Uh, so Vatican II, I think, helped to bring an end to the uh, the anti-contraceptive campaigns uh, of the Catholic Church. There were other factors involved as well, but Vatican II played uh, a role in that. Um, in addition, I think Vatican II gave many Americans the perception, and perhaps it was the wrong perception, but nevertheless, uh, both Catholics and non-Catholics came away from from Vatican II with the perception that the Catholic Church uh, did not speak uh, with an unchanging voice on moral issues. And they thought it was likely that the church would change its its stance on contraception. And, and if that were to happen, which of course it did not, but but if it were to happen, then, then why should the Catholic Church uh, be trusted when it would speak out on abortion as well? And so on the one hand, Vatican II gave an impetus for some Catholics to make a human rights argument uh, against abortion and to translate the pro-life movement into language that the the non-Catholics uh, could could understand and endorse. And so in that sense, it was good for the pro-life movement. Uh, but on the other hand, this perception that was created because of Vatican II made it much more difficult for Catholics to speak out uh, in the public square on moral issues like abortion than it had been before. Sure, sure. But let, let's move forward a little bit here. And I think the real the real crux of your argument, or at least I think the, the part of your argument in your book that I think will get the most attention, 
uh, from um, people in the culture wars or pro-life movement or even pro-choice movement and so forth. And you mentioned it earlier in, in, earlier in one of the answers to a previous question. But you make a very compelling case that in the years prior to Roe versus Wade, the pro-life movement was largely a progressive movement. Uh, people like Ted Kennedy, uh, Jesse Jackson and others uh, being uh, very much uh, pro-life uh, and seeing pro-life as sort of rooted in their progressive uh, politics or their progressive view of the world. Um, develop that for us a little bit. Um, most people today listening to the podcast who know something about the pro-life movement think of it as a kind of very conservative Republican uh, political um part of the political platform of the Republican Party or the GOP, uh, you know, complicate that narrative for us a little bit, Daniel. Yes, I, I think you're right that, that that is a central argument of the book and one that a lot of people will find quite intriguing. In the late 1960s, many of the people who were most supportive of liberalizing abortion laws or even legalizing abortion altogether were Republicans. And those included liberal Republicans like uh, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, who signed into law uh, the nation's most permissive abortion law before Roe versus Wade, but they also included conservative Republicans. So one of the governors uh, who signed into law a an abortion liberalization measure in 1967 was California Governor Ronald Reagan. Uh, Barry Goldwater, uh, who was the face of the conservative movement in the mid to late 1960s, uh, was strongly supportive of abortion rights. But on the other hand, there were a lot of people who were in many cases, liberal Democrats, who made a human rights-based argument in favor of protecting the unborn and saw the unborn child as a defenseless minority who needed and deserved legal protection, just like the civil rights movement had argued for uh, legal protections for African-Americans. They also saw this as a, a human life issue. And so many people who were opposed to the Vietnam War uh, also opposed uh, abortion rights on the same ground, saying uh, abortion is killing, the Vietnam War is, is, is unjustified killing, and they were opposed to both. And so the pro-life movement was, was filled not only with uh, politically progressive Catholics, of whom there were many, but even with some politically progressive uh, anti-war Protestants, often from mainline or liberal Protestant traditions. So Charles Carroll, for example, who was a an Episcopal priest from Berkeley, California, and was a strong opponent of the of the Vietnam War and, and who had participated in civil rights marches, was one of the early Protestant leaders in the civil right in the uh, the pro-life movement of the late uh, 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, Richard John Newhouse, who at the time was a politically liberal Lutheran, later on, of course, he would become a, a Catholic and, and more politically conservative, but at the time was strongly opposed to the Vietnam War, uh, also spoke out uh, against abortion because of his, his anti-war views, and, and I could list many others. Um, so then the question, of course, is how did all of this change? What happened? And I think the answer is that the feminist movement was also making a rights-based argument on abortion, but of course was making uh, the argument on the other side. Right. Uh, there were a number, there were few people in the pro-life movement who called themselves feminist, but the national feminist organizations, like the National Organization for Women, ended up taking a pro-choice stance very early. And by the early to mid-1970s, they had succeeded in making the abortion issue a women's rights issue. The early uh, abortion rights advocates had not necessarily tied their movement to feminism, but by the early to mid-1970s, 
uh, there was a close identification between abortion rights and feminism. And so they made a competing rights-based arguments. Uh, and in the end, the Democratic Party chose to endorse the pro-choice feminist argument rather than the pro-life human rights-based argument. Right. Both were making a human rights-based argument. Uh, both were arguing from traditionally democratic uh, liberal principles of the mid 20th century. And I think Roe v. Wade played a large role in giving uh, the Democratic Party the political cover that it needed to choose between these two competing factions. Because as late as 1976, those were equally large factions uh, among grassroots Democrats. And the Democratic Party, I think, could use Roe as a cover saying, well, the Supreme Court has already ruled on this issue. Therefore, we're going to to choose to to in, uh, endorse the abortion rights side, oppose a pro-life constitutional amendment, a human life amendment, uh, and who knows what would have happened had it not been uh, for Roe v. Wade. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, here we're here in Pennsylvania, and of course, the great example is um, Bob Casey, you know, the Pennsylvania pro-life uh, pro-life governor. Yeah, and and you know, Casey was one of the last holdouts in the Democratic Party, and in the mid to late 1970s, there were numerous other uh, nationally known Democrats who yeah. were uh, liberal on many issues and strongly pro-life. Uh, by 1992, most of that has shifted, but as late as 92, more than one third of the members of the, of the Democratic members of the House of Representatives in Congress met the National Right to Life Committee's stringent standards for being rated pro-life candidates. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, and so this, the, this lingering uh, liberal legacy uh, lasted much longer than what a lot of people have imagined. Uh, sure. The pro-life—you uh, would never know it today, of course—but the the Democratic Party continued to um, contain vestiges of that that early pro-life impetus as late as the last decade of the 20th century. But even now, Bob Casey Jr. is uh, kind of one of those last holdouts of that traditional. Um, I think what I've always classified as a kind of Catholic progressivism um, that is pro-life across the board and combines, um, you know, opposition to abortion with also a very uh, stringent uh, uh, opposition to the death penalty and other things that kind of end up falling more in um, within the Democratic Party's uh, platform. Yeah, that sort of consistent ethic of life that a lot of the Catholic bishops like to talk about. Um, what's fascinating, too, is, uh, is you know, Casey beat Rick Santorum in that senatorial election. Um, and, you know, I think I think one of the reasons why was because, you know, a lot of sort of these working class Catholic pro-lifers uh, could feel comfortable leaving Santorum for Casey because of his pro-life position. At least that's the way I saw that election. Dan, let me let me ask you, um, we talked a little bit about the uh, evangelicals coming on board. Um, tell me a little bit more about that story. You know, how do how does then the pro-life movement become something that is not exclusively uh, a Catholic movement, and when do the sort of evangelicals, uh, what are the circumstances with the, which these evangelicals come on board? So now, you know, we normally think of pro-life as sort of affiliated with, you know, the topic of your first book, you know, the, the, the evangelical Christian right. 
Right. Uh, I think the evangelicals came on board in at least three stages during the 1970s. And one of the fascinating things to me that I had not really expected when I started the research on Defenders of the Unborn was to find that at the very beginning of the 1970s, say in January 1970, while the movement, the pro-life movement was overwhelmingly Catholic, if you looked at the handful of Protestants who were involved in the movement in, say, January 1970, they would have been far more likely to come from mainline or liberal Protestant denominations, uh, the Episcopal Church, for example, or, or the, uh, the Methodist Church, uh, than from uh, more conservative evangelical uh, denominations. And the reason for that was that the pro-life movement had positioned itself as an ecumenical, politically liberal movement at the beginning of the 1970s, and, and evangelicals were, were not quite sure they wanted to sign on to this. But that quickly changed. And the first stage in their uh, commitment to the pro-life movement came uh, in late 1970 and, and 1971, when some leading evangelical writers reacted to what they called abortion on demand. That is, as I said, the legalization of, of all abortions for any reason up through uh, the second trimester. And that happened in New York and several other states in 1970. And so in 1971, uh, some leading evangelical lights, luminaries like uh, Carl Henry, this this uh, evangelical theologian who had edited Christianity Today, uh, L. Nelson Bell, who was uh, the father-in-law of, of Billy Graham and, and a writer in his own right, um, both of those people, as well as a number of others, wrote articles against abortion in 1971 and began encouraging people to to take the pro-life movement seriously. The next stage uh, was Roe v. Wade. And Christianity Today strongly condemned Roe v. Wade uh, when that decision was issued in its February 1973 issue. It, it reacted very strongly against Roe. Uh, but the third stage that I think is probably the most familiar to to most people who know something about the Christian right, and it's, it's one that I emphasized in, in my first book, um, God's Own Party, was when Francis Schaeffer um, came out with the documentary and book, How Should We Then Live in 1976, and then followed that up with Whatever Happened to the Human Race in 1979 uh, that was focused specifically on the abortion issue. In, in both of those works, he positioned the abortion issue in the context of a larger drift away from Christian principles and a larger trend toward what he called secular humanism. And that was the framework with which most evangelicals who who joined the pro-life cause in the late 1970s and early 1980s approached the abortion issue. They thought of it not so much as a, a human rights cause that should be linked with opposition to capital punishment or opposition to war or nuclear weapons buildup, as, as many Catholics did, but instead they thought of it as a way to take a stand against uh, secular humanism and put a stop to the moral drift in the nation. Yeah, so and that's pretty much where we are today, as um, as as abortion being such a a major player in the sort of uh, culture war debates and the and the elections and religion and politics. Right. And interestingly enough, with that shift, I think also came a shift from the Democratic Party as being at least a potential home for the pro life movement to to the Republican Party being the only viable place for them. That shift, yeah. Of course, had many explanations. Uh, one of is obviously the Democratic Party's rejection of of the pro life view, but the evangelical reframing of the pro life issue as a, as a culturally conservative cause fit in very nicely with uh, a a growing 
social conservatism in the Republican Party in a way that maybe this earlier human rights argument, especially when coupled with with opposition to the Vietnam War and opposition to capital punishment, uh, really did not. I was wondering, Daniel, if you could plug your next book and uh, talk about whatever kind of historical work you are uh, pursuing right now. Yes. Uh, well, it's in the very initial stages, uh, so this could continue to to evolve and be redefined as I continue my research. But what I would like to do is to write a long history of Christian apologetics uh, in the United States and perhaps even to a certain extent uh, in uh, Britain as well, uh, in order to examine how Christians who were intellectually engaged and who wanted to make peace uh, with the the with modernity, with uh, with the scientific mindset, dealt with a number of challenges to their faith, a number of intellectual challenges to the faith that began, I think, with the 18th century deists and and a view of rational Christianity, as it was called, uh, and continued on to the present uh, in such forms as as the new atheism, and I think that story uh, that that. 250 or 300 year uh, story of uh, Christian intellectual engagement with arguments against the faith uh, is a story that hasn't really been told in a very comprehensive manner uh, and also, I think, um, deserves a lot more scrutiny than it's received. The book is Defenders of the Unborn, the Pro-Life Movement Before Roe v. Wade, Oxford University Press, uh, just came out January 2016. The author we've been talking to uh, for the last 20, 25 minutes or so is Daniel Williams. Thanks, Daniel. This has been a very, very informative conversation. Thanks, John. Appreciate that. and turns them on their head. And I think that's what Daniel Williams is trying to do here. Uh, for all, By all reports, uh, and again, I've read the book too, this is a very fair and balanced treatment of the pro-life movement in America. It's a movement that uh, very, you know, any historian could have taken and really ran with it and politicized. Uh, but I think Williams is a careful historian trying to make sense of the fact that uh, the pro-life movement was very much tied to progressive causes uh, prior to Roe versus Wade. I was really impressed by the New York Times interview. Uh, you know, a place like the New York Times could have easily reviewed this book and politicized it. But uh, even the New York Times has said that Williams has offered a very fair and balanced treatment of the pro-life movement. So I'm, I'm really appreciative for what he has added uh, to our understanding of the history of the culture wars, the history of feminism, the history of American politics and religion. I think this really does demonstrate the ways in which contemporary politics has oversimplified this issue. Right? Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're necessarily pro-life. Or just because you're a Democrat doesn't mean you're necessarily pro-choice. And I think the history of this issue really helps to bring out the complexity of, of the topic. And the fact that the divisions between pro-life and pro-choice are a lot more fuzzy in the past, historically, than we 
I think, tend to assume. No, I think you're exactly right, Drew. And when you dig into the past, sometimes you find that the stories are going to be much more nuanced, um, as you said, much more complex than the ways in which the past is used in political debates. And I think that's what historians do. And that's what historical thinking is. So uh, again, um, thank you, Daniel Williams. And I hope that we were able to do a fair and honest job on this episode devoted to a rather controversial topic like the culture wars we hope that you enjoyed this episode as well go visit us on itunes download the episode tell your friends tweet us uh, talk about us on facebook and as usual may your way of improvement always lead on This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Many thanks to Ed Ark for his support. Original music is by Overholt. Thanks to my dog, Brighton, for barking through portions of the interview. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermling, and your host is John Fia.